morning, everyone. This is from 2 Peter 1, 12 through 19. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you know I have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He re- <laughs> Sorry. He received honor and glory from God the Father, and when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, who I love with all, with him I am well pleased. With ourselves heard the voice came from the heaven when we were, <laughs> when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As, the, as to the light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So a couple weeks ago, I was at the Advent Christian Triennial Convention. That's the gathering for all the representatives from our Advent Christian churches from around the country. And while we were there, they made sure to drill at least one thing into our minds. Checkout is at 10 a.m. The conference center hosting the convention was providing us with lodging, and so the message was the same for all. Checkout is at 10 a.m. It was on my key card, and I could have figured it out if I just spared a second to look, but the denominational staff wanted to make sure none of us forget. The convention might go to noon, But checkout is at 10 a.m. Twice they announced this from stage and had all of us repeat it back to them. Checkout is at 10 a.m. We couldn't forget, and now I imagine it will be one of those weird things I'll remember if I live to be an old man. Now, after they told us the first time, they, they knew that we knew, that they had told us, but they repeated the second time because they wanted to make sure we didn't forget it. They didn't need a fiasco of people running out of the last day's business session because they forgot to clean out their room. Of course, it's not just denominational staff that offers these kind of reminders. Parents will tell their kids the same thing again and again. First, because kids are forgetful. But second, because parents love their children and will say, be careful, even when those kids are now well-informed adults. The believers receiving Peter's letter know the truth. He's not giving them anything radically new. He's repeating the truth. He's reminding them of the truth because it's just that important. 
and he loves them. He says in verse 12, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you you now have. Peter says he's, he's going to always remind the believers of this truth because he wants to make sure that they know it and are firmly established in it. And this, this burden that Peter has to remind them of, of the truth is, is the same burden that's shared by other apostles. We see the Apostle John talk like this in his letters. And we hear Paul say the same thing, basically, in Philippians 3.1. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. The apostles want to look out for the believers. They want to make sure that they do not forget the truth. They don't want them to forget the things that they are teaching them. So what things has Peter been telling the believers here? What is the truth that he's been reminding them of? Well, if we go back to the previous verses, we can kind of pick it out. When you look at verses 3 and 4 and 9. He told them earlier, his divine power, speaking of God's divine power, has, been given us every, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires." So Peter's talking about how in knowing Christ we have received divine power so that we are now freed from the corruption that previously ruled our hearts so that we can now participate in the divine nature so that we can actually live like Jesus. And then he goes on to list a series of virtues that ought to be built upon our faith that you'll remember he spoke about goodness and self-control and perseverance and love. And he follows all that list up with in verse 9 by saying, but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blinded and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So what he's trying to remind them of is that in Jesus Christ, you have received a new life. And now you're to walk in that new life. He's reminding them of the reality of who Jesus is because they can only have this new life if he is, in fact, the Messiah, if he is, in fact, the Savior, if he is, in fact, the Son of God. Apart from the just basic importance of Peter reminding them of of these basic truths and the obvious love that he has for them, Peter says that He's compelled to refresh their memory because he knows that he's approaching his death. And this leads us to surmise that you know Peter is getting up in years here, but specifically he says it's, this is something that Christ has revealed to him. And maybe this is something that he, Christ had revealed to him more recently, but we do know that in John 21, 18 through 19, that Jesus spoke... Of, and told Peter 
that he's basically going to be killed for the faith. And tradition says that Peter was crucified. And so, having anticipate, this anticipation of his, of his death, Peter wants to refresh the memories of the believers as much as he can before he dies. As long as he says, as he's in this tent of his bot of his bot of this body, which is kind of a strange way of talking ab- about you know your your life in the body. But it's, a, it's the same way that Paul speaks of it. Um, he talks about this in Second Corinthians five, um, talking about how he wishes to be further clothed. So it's not a desire to, to just die and be without your body, but it's a desire to trade our current bodies for that which is to come. Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, he says, For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. And that's, Peter would obviously share in that same hope as well, but as long as he's in this current tent, in this current house, he feels this burden to remind the believers of this truth. Which is kind of maybe counter to a lot of the attitudes that people have nowadays when they're approaching the end of their life, when they're getting older. You think when you get older and you get into retirement, like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll slow down, won't do as much. That's not Peter's outlook here. In verse 15, he says, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. He's pouring all of himself out to make sure that they don't fall apart, that they don't go astray once he's gone. And this is an instructive example for us. I think. Now, already we should be putting forth every effort in advancing the gospel of building up the body of Christ just by virtue of the fact that we're anticipating Christ's return. Christ is going to return, and the question is, is how is he going to find us? Is he going to find us ready and waiting? Being found ready and waiting doesn't mean that you're out on a hill looking up at the sky for Jesus to come back. Being found ready and wet, waiting means that you're being obedient to the task that God has given us. And as, as Christians, that all of us need to have that attitude. And as Advent Christians, that's kind of a point of emphasis for us, is that we need to have this attitude of anticipation and diligence, expecting Christ's return. But whether Christ returns in your lifetime or not, all of us are working within a finite window, just as Peter was working within a finite window. So yes, if you're young, you, know, you should make every effort, but especially if you're older, like Peter, you should be making every effort to pass on to faith, to make sure that those that you're going to leave behind will remember the truth of the gospel. It's a call to be faithful with the time that God has given you. Now, 
Part of what Peter wants to remind the believers of here is that the truth that he has taught them was not the product of speculation, but rather of eyewitness testimony. Verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the apostles, of course, were eyewitnesses of the entirety of Jesus' ministry, of his resurrection as well. They saw him alive. They ate with him. But here, when Peter's talking about being an eyewitness of his majesty, he's particularly keen in on how he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Christ. When we see him talk about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, we tend to think of perhaps Christ's second coming, but obviously Peter wasn't alive for that. We're still waiting on that. Or maybe you would think of Christ's resurrection, which was certainly a powerful event. But that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, that's not a word you hear every day, transfiguration. So you might wonder, well, what does that mean? Well, you can just kind of break the word apart and figure it out. What it's talking about is how the figure of Jesus was transformed. Previously, Jesus appeared as just a common human being, walking down the dusty roads of Galilee with his disciples. But on this mountain, with a select group of his disciples, He revealed who he truly was, the Son of God incarnate. We have this record in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Matthew records, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. This pronouncement, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well with him I am well pleased, is, is something that we hear earlier as well in Matthew 3 17, when Jesus is baptized. A voice from heaven says the very same thing. What is the significance of it? Its significance is that it has messianic implications. It's tying Jesus into the line of David. In Psalm 2, verses 7 through 12, we hear this pact that God has made with the throne of David. It says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. 
You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now again, this is a pact that God made with the throne of David. So it accounts for David and Solomon and all the kings that followed, but unfortunately, the sons of David strayed away from being faithful to God. What we have with Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment of all that the Davidic throne was supposed to be. And so this psalm is pointing to Jesus, the full promise that's being realized here in Jesus and his rule and reign. In this declaration that Jesus is the Son, the beloved Son, also has divine implications. When we go to the letter to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. It's very different than a prophet. God didn't make the universe through any prophet. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So not only is the Son the ruler of all the earth, to whom all the nations should come and and kiss, seeking refuge and shelter that they might not get on his bad side, but also this Son is the king of, of the heavens. He is superior to the angels. He is the exact representation of God. And he is so because he is, in fact, God. He is God incarnate. And we've already seen Peter indicate this earlier in this chapter in verse 1 where he starts out just by saying, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's making that clear, that Jesus is divine. So when he's referring to this moment of transfiguration, Jesus, Peter's referring to this because it was in this moment that the reality of who Jesus is was revealed. The voice that Peter heard proceeding from the majestic glory, that that voice is proceeding from a glory that also filled the temple when it was first dedicated. In 2 Chronicles 7, it's recorded of how the priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. The same divine presence that is on that mountain was at the burning bush which made Moses remove his sandals because he was on holy ground. And it's that divine presence which makes the mountain that they're on sacred. It wasn't a special mountain before that moment. It was made sacred because of the divine presence 
there. And they're not sure exactly where that mountain was. It's been suggested traditionally Mount Tabor, but it was a mountain that they met. Elijah and Moses and Christ was revealed for who he truly is. Peter's testimony, the reality of what he saw, is massive. But it's not the only light we have to see the reality of who Jesus is. In verse 19, Peter says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. When Peter speaks of the prophetic message, what he's talking about is the Old Testament. All the prophecies that have preceded. All of these have been pointing to Jesus. And Peter talks about this in his earlier letter, in 1 Peter. We, we went through this. In 1 Peter 1, verses 8-12, through 12, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then he says this concerning the prophets. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Peter says that this prophecy is sufficient even in itself to confirm who Jesus is. The message of the prophets is reliable. Now, as we are past the, the time of the apostles, we can include the message of the New Testament in that message of the prophets as well. The Holy Scriptures, God's Word, is a light to us in the darkness. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119.105, Your Word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Just consider for a moment what it would be like if we did not have the Bible. If we did not have God's Word. How dark would this world be? How dark would your own life be? It would be dark as, as midnight. God's written word is a light to us. But God has also given us more than this as well. He's given us his word, not only in letter, but in flesh. And this is what Peter's testifying to. The Apostle John testifies to this in the first chapter of his Gospel. In John 1, verses 1-5, through 5, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him was nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light 
of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so because we have received the Word of God, because we have put our faith in the Word incarnate, the light of the Word, world, that light now shines in our own hearts, even today. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse, verse 6, Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, may His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And so we have this light presently today. We have God's Word. We have God's Word in our heart. Christ in our hearts. But we do still live within darkness. It is a light within darkness. There's more that is to come. We hear the Apostle Paul speaking of this in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8-12. through This is the famous passage where Paul's talking about love. That's not really our focus here. Right now we're focusing more on what he's saying is to come. What, what, what is going to pass away and what we're going to receive when Christ returns. He says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You see, there's going to come a time when you and I will not need the Bible. And that sounds radical to say that. What? You're not going to need the Bible? But really, it's, it's no more radical to say that than to say that you won't need a flashlight at noon on a summer's day. Because there's a day coming when we will no longer be separated from God. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and He intercedes on our behalf. But there is a day coming when Christ will return and God will make His home with us here on earth. Right now, we don't understand everything. We see as though through a mirror. Things are somewhat distorted. But God has given us enough so that we might be led to Him and reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. But when that day comes, everything will be transparent. And we will understand the truth completely. And so we're looking forward to that day which is to come. And, and that is the, the day that Peter is anticipating here. He speaks of this, the dawning of the day, the rise of the morning star in our hearts. And it appears that what he's talking about here is... Christ's return. Now Jesus identifies himself as the morning star in Revelation 22:16 in John's revelation. 
He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring in the offspring of David. Jesus basically saying, I'm the Messiah in the bright morning star. The prophet Malachi speaks of that day, of the rising sun of righteousness in Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. What a wonderful day that will be. It's a day when justice will be served. It's a day when the fullness of God's mercy will be received for all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I love that image of, of us frolicking around like well-fed calves. And I, I don't hang out with cows very much, so I don't know exactly what that looks like. But I imagine my German short-haired pointer bouncing around and frolicking around. And that's how much joy that we're going to have on that day. Because the fullness of light will have dawned. There will be no more darkness. Peter wants the believers, he wants us to remember the sure word of our salvation. As, we see, as we'll see in the passages to follow, Christians will be tempted to go astray. We protect ourselves by remembering by reminding each other again and again of the truth. Now, if you're a believer who thinks you've heard it all, that maybe the Bible has kind of become old hat to you because you've heard all the stories and all the sermons and stuff, I just want to give you three words of challenge this morning. The first is check twice. You probably don't know as much as you think you know. I'm, I'm speaking from experience here because I thought I knew a lot you know, when I graduated from Bible college. And then I went to seminary and found out how much I did not know. <laughs> the Bible is for everyone. That's the wonderful thing about God's words. Anyone can access it. But we shouldn't think that just because we're familiar with the shallow end of the pool that there is no deep end. We're here for a very brief time on this earth. Trust me when I say that you can spend your whole life studying Scripture and continue to discover new jewels and precious truths. The second thing is that you need to remember that you and I are willfully forgetful. It's true of me. It's true of you. Unless the gospel is always before us, we will begin believing other gospels. You can know all the facts, and yet your heart will make you go sideways. You'll start fixating on politics. 
you'll start fixating on your career, fame, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. We'll start fixating in, on other things as that's going to save me. That's my real hope and joy. That's what happens if we fail to remind ourselves. Vigilance requires repetition. It's just like strength training. If you just build yourself up and then you're like, okay, I'm pretty strong now. I'm walking away from the gym. Guess what? Your arms are going to go flabby eventually again. We always have to be going back to the gym, lifting, reminding ourselves of these truths. Third and finally, you listen so you can speak. Obviously, not all of you are going to be pastors, but all of you have a chance to repeat these truths to your fellow Christians. You don't need a theology degree to do that. It can be as simple as saying checkout is at 10 a.m. It's that simple. One of you feels condemned and unworthy. Another one of you says, His grace is enough. When one of you feels afraid in this messed up world, another one of you says, the King is coming. We need to hear these truths again and again. Not just from me or from any other pastor, but from every member of the body of Christ. Like Peter, are we making every effort to do this? It's so easy to get distracted, to even be busy, but busy about all the wrong things. Let's commit ourselves not to do that. Let's commit instead to make Rockland Community Church a church permeated with the gospel truth in all places at all times. Just as with God's commands, may we follow the pattern of Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy 6 in reminding each other of these gospel truths in the way that he prescribes. He says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Let us remember. Let us remind each other. Let us not forget. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, we thank You for Peter's example of how You gave him the wisdom to know our weakness as human beings. Of how we're so apt to forget the reality of, of who Jesus is. Of the promises that we have in Him of how we've been freed from sin's power and been given a new life. Of how in Him we, we're not fixing our hope on a kingdom of this world, but of a kingdom which is 
to come. Father, help us to not tire of hearing these truths. Instead, Father, give us a zeal and a desire to, to search out Your Word all the more, to understand its full splendor. Make us passionate about drilling ourselves in knowing these promises, knowing this good news, so that we will not grow weak in the faith. Make us passionate, Father, about passing this on to the next generation. Of not letting the gospel truth die with us. But like Peter, making every effort to see that it continues on long after we're gone. So that when your son returns, he will find his people here in Situate. Help us to do this, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through First and Second Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.